Let's go. You're listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. Welcome to the podcast, folks. Uh, Al Martin here. I'm already, <laughs> I'm already laughing with Janine Sneed. We're going to have a good discussion today. Welcome to summer. Uh, I went from sweatshirts to 90 degree weather in like one day which is fine by me. Uh, pool's ready. It's already open. We're ready to go. The topic today we're going to have is scaling customer success or customer success management. I am here with Janine Sneed, who is the vice president of customer success here at IBM. She's held many roles. She's been on the podcast before. Uh, she has been a chief digital officer. She's led offering management. We could go on and on. Janine, how you been? Welcome back. Welcome. It's great to be back. Thanks for having me again, Al. You still exercising a ton? You know it, Al. It's my stress stress reliever. Six days a week, Al. Six days a week. Six days. Or seven. What happens the seventh day? Day of rest? When it's really stressful, then it's seven, Al. (laughs) (laughs) So what's your formula? You get up every day and work out? I mean, first thing in the morning or do you switch it up? What? Oh yeah. Okay. So this is my routine. 5.15, alarm goes off, coffee's ready. I sit down, I drink my coffee, I read, I journal for about 45 minutes. And then I hop on the treadmill and do some Peloton shred boot camps, or I'll do a little Peloton bike, or if it's nice, I'll go outside. So that's my routine now. How, how long? Half uh, hour, anywhere- 45 minutes? Anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour, depending on who decides to put a seven o'clock call on my calendar. <laughs> I know that. All right. Is it always cardio? Uh, no, weights too. I, I, I love the boot camps. I love doing running weights, running weights, running weights. Best workout ever, Peloton Tread. Amazing. Love it. I may have to think about this. You and I talked about this a little bit before. Uh, look, I like my Peloton. But I was doing like P90X before I got my Peloton. Yeah. And now when I do the, I do the same thing. I do cardio and then I do weights, cardio weights. And, and I try to do seven days a week because inevitably I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to miss something, which actually ties into what we're going to talk about today, because to me, it's a practice and you've got to practice. We'll get to that in a bit. But so the problem with Peloton's, I think, weights, though, they seem to talk a lot. You know, I'm ready to get it going. And I'm like, I'm used to just go, 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 go. And even P90X, they talk a lot, but I think I got it down to the point. I have it memorized. So I just skip all the talking. I don't know if you find that to be the case. Maybe you say it's great. So, yeah. So I don't find it like that. I don't know what it is. I only do, there's two that I um, really kind of go with to um, instructors and, and, and Peloton. And I don't find a lot of talking. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just me, or maybe I just, Maybe I like when people talk. I don't know. I haven't noticed <laughs> No, and now it's well, going to happen. And I'm going to notice it and it's going to bother me. Oh, boy. Well, look, uh, maybe I just need to figure out which ones you're using and, and, and switch. There you switch go. Switch to those workouts. We'll have to see. All right. Look, you got to give us your experience. You were on. I checked it on. I was looking right before the 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 recording here. And I, I uh, number my podcast even though they don't correspond to the number that I have that we actually publish. Meaning I, I'm like just over 200 podcasts that I've done, but I know we like, sometimes we'll split them in half. I think I've missed some. You think I'd be really 
stringent or, or detailed about this, but I'm not. But you were 65. So it's been a while since you've been here. So it was it was due. We were actually well overdue. Wow. Well overdue. Well, I'm glad I have something that's interesting to talk about. <laughs> you always <laughs> You know, we want to maybe guess about 135 that were not interesting for me to talk about. So yes, Al, thank you for having me back. <laughs> so if you would, since it was, and I'm sure everybody's going to go back and listen to 65. I don't even know if it, it wasn't 65, but give us a little bit of your experience. What brings you to this day? Yeah. So it's a really good question. Careers are interesting, aren't they? Sometimes it it could be a ladder and sometimes it's a jungle gym. And I've had great experiences across product as well as sales. And I feel like with what I'm leading with customer success today, all the stars aligned. I had about 16 years in product and it was ranging from product management product strategy. Um, For the most part, those were the core roles for 16 years. And it was always in what I would say cloud-based businesses, although it may not have been cloud at the time, SaaS, infrastructure as a service, and a lot of thinking about product-led growth and how you drive users to adopt your platform with product-led growth. And then how do you keep them with product-led growth? Then I did some things in sales. I did sales enablement. And then I did a hybrid of really sales and product management and something called digital offering management. How do you build products with digital capabilities within them, like product-led growth? And how do you drive a new distribution model through that, through the web and through partners? And that was really cool. And I think the mix of product and sales led me to what I'm leading right now, which is customer success. And quite frankly, it's the best job on the planet. It's the best job I've ever had. I absolutely love this function. I quickly went through your notes from the last time. And the brand you gave me was customer. I think it was just, it was customer and execution. So I think I'll believe you when you say customer success is your favorite position, because I think it does match your expertise pretty well. Hey, if it wasn't customer success, what has been your best position outside of that? Digital offering management, because it was so new and it was all about how we take some of our offerings and get them out on the web and how do we drive growth, revenue growth through product led growth built within the products. And uh, it was an amazing team, just like an amazing team that I have right now. And it was fun, Al, because it was trying to get IBM to do something that we haven't done before through a new channel. So that was the, the love before this. Let's talk customer success. Let's jump in. I think this is a huge role, of course. Not long ago, you started a series of blogs or a newsletter on scaling customer success. I did read it, and I did see that you say, I'd like to hear from you. You say that like at the end of many of them. And I thought, well, maybe I should write something in. But in natural form for me, I said, well, I'm just going to have her on the podcast, and I'll give her feedback, and we'll chat about it. Um, So look, what I like about what you have there, though, is they're hard hitting, they're short, they're to the point, they're vulnerable and honest, I thought. In other words, I look at it and for for a moment, I could she say that? 
Yeah, I think she, she, she said that. That's all right. And I, mean, I thought it was really good, really informative so far. I think what you're on five of, you got chapters already laid out. What you five of nine or something like that? Yeah. Or 12 or something. I can't yeah, remember. absolutely. I, my chapters are laid out. I, I know what I want to talk about and I have something to say. And, and now I am pretty transparent, right? And I'm not afraid to admit when I've made mistakes and I went left and I should have went right. But that's how I've learned really about this function and what we need to do. So I want to get it out. I want to get it out. And I want to help other customer success leaders because in reality, this really is a new function and we haven't really even scratched the surface on what customer success managers could do for companies. So let's walk through it a little bit, but let's start with fundamentals. What is customer success? Your definition. Thank you for asking, because I think there's probably, you know, 0.1% of the population that really understand what customer success is. And my mantra, you know, now through when I think I've achieved it is to help the the world understand what customer success is. Um, So customer success is a post-sales function, and it's all about how you can help your customers achieve outcomes with capabilities that they bought from you. We see it a lot in software. We see it a lot in SaaS, but customer success does not have to be limited to software and technology and SaaS and cloud-based companies. You think about the sale and everything that goes into actually landing that client. Somebody has to come in and take care of that client after the deal is closed. Somebody has to onboard the client. They have to understand the journey and the roadmap of what it means to take a client from where they are today to where they want to go in the future. And understanding what the client destination is and how you help customers get there is all about the customer success function. I tell my CSMs, I want you to know more about your client's business and what they want to achieve very, very like quantifiably. What do they want to achieve? Then I want them to know about IBM, quite frankly. I want them to know their customer's business inside and out for success. So let me pause there. One thing you said rings a bell here. I mean, it does seem to be a major thing, though, since the advent of SaaS that we talk about customer success management. But, you know, look, deployment or achieving outcomes and capabilities for a product were here long before the, the cloud was, was invented. What's, what's the difference? So I've read different um, starting points for customer success. And some folks point back to Mark Benioff and Salesforce when they went to SaaS. Uh, another company pointed back to actually SaaS, but trying to get references from clients. And they needed somebody to be with the customer after the sales team left and went on to go find new opportunities. So I wouldn't say it's solely because of SaaS, but I would say it was a major driving force for a couple reasons. One, customers don't own your software in SaaS and cloud-based models. Customers don't own your software in subscription. So if you want to keep customers and you want customers to continue using and you don't want to churn the number of customers or your revenue, somebody has to take care of that post-sales. And the SaaS cloud-based business models and subscription business models 
are really the impetus for driving customer success. So we were just lazy before. We were we, lazy. Because we sold them what licenses. We knew, hey, we had them around for at least a year or whatever. Right. And, you know, and then, you know, they probably hear from their, the company, the reps or whatever, right before they're going to renew again. Hey, what can we do for you? Are you using it? But before that, we just, we, we didn't invest like we do today. Exactly. And in, in some organizations, if, if customers aren't consuming, you don't get revenue. So they pay based on what they're using. And so somebody's got to get in there. And I have a strong point of view on the profile of a CSM, but somebody's got to get in there to know the products well enough and know the client well enough to show them how to use and get value. We'll get to the profile of CSM, but I do have one question before I forget. You say you have the CSMs learning what outcomes clients are trying to achieve. I'm just curious, how do you keep them client facing all the time versus working on internal issues or internal process? Do you have any practices or methods that you keep them client facing so that they are learning from their clients? It's a good question. And quite frankly, it's a delicate balance. So we, we look at our calendar, you know, and how, how much of your time are you spending with clients versus how much are you, time are you spending on internal activities, internal activities? Like sometimes you have to do calls with the account team, right? There's account planning sessions. And I want CSMs to have a seat at the table in that. And that's important. There are other times I'm not going to lie. It was like, Hey, go build me this presentation that I can go present to my client. It's like, why, why would, what, what, like, huh? So I think that there's this balance thing of what, and, and people get really upset with me when I say, this is what we do and this is what we don't do. But Al, if we don't be clear on what a customer success manager is, they become everything to everybody. And then it doesn't become a mission. It, we lose our way and we're not actually helping the client in the end. So I think it's a balance of what are some of those really important um, discussions we need to do internally. I have CSMs that are, are on a core team in our top accounts. And I think that's fabulous because we finally have a seat at the table. And I, I want to thank our technology MDs and te technology sellers for giving us that opportunity because it wasn't always like that. So we have to be intentional on what we do and what we don't do. Um, and then I think there's, there's just time also that we need to spend for learning because even though that is internal, that's, that's valuable because if you know your products and you know, you're actually, if you know your products, you're actually help, able to help your customers use them better. So it's that balance between internal calls, updating gain site, learning, and then spending time with your client. I don't have a magic formula, but it's a mix of ensuring that one doesn't kind of overtake others other than, you know, we want as much client time as possible. Well, it may not be magic, but I've seen your formula. It's pretty strong. I'll give you that. I mentioned practice a few times. Do you consider customer success practice? I absolutely do. And I think that a practice is critical for customer success managers and for the function. Um, would it be helpful if I talk a little bit about what I mean by a practice? Yes, please. Okay. So I've, I've clearly had more failures than I've had success in my career. That means you're pushing the envelope, by the way. Right? That, that is success in and of itself, but keep going. Right? And when I first launched customer success, we didn't really have a practice. We were sort of, I would say, floundering a little bit. We had growth plans. We had retention plans. We had defection plans. But there wasn't a lot to it. 
we did not have fundamentals. And Al, talking about sports, you and I both know that fundamentals are important, right? Having your form right, having, you know, balanced diet, having sleep, all those things are important. Fundamentals matter in any function and they really matter in customer success. So I really had to change my thinking and think about discipline and think about mechanisms. Again, I'll go back to sports, right? Discipline, consistency, mechanisms, those things help, help, those things help you win. So I read a lot and I read a lot on customer success in the industry and what's out there. And I came to the realization that I needed a practice. And this was a practice to help me build and scale methods, assets, and tools so that my CSMs could have fundamentals. So a practice and the practice within IBM actually has three arms. One arm is a pure customer success practice. This is helping my CSMs actually build their muscle of what a customer success professional should do. So we have playbooks for driving adoption. We have methods for driving adoption. That's where Gainsight is managed. It's our profession of customer success and how do you go from one level to the next and what gates you have to cross. Um, it's our community. It's stories, customer stories and CSM stories. So that's the first arm. The second arm is all about product. And you've heard me talk about product a couple of times in this. I really, really, really believe it is hard for a CSM to be successful if they do not have technical product skills. Um, and that's maybe because I'm in a cloud-based company and to do hybrid cloud, you have to be technical. So the second arm is on product practices. This is filling the playbook with knowing how to use your products, how to drive adoption on your products, depending on your personal organization that you're running as a CS leader, your CSMs may deploy software. Ours do, right? So knowing how to do that deployment and configuration, training, assets and architecture, that's the product practice. And then the third arm is all about data and insights. It's the, your management system. If you think about those three arms, the first two arms are your inputs. It's all about your training and, and getting the client up and running and, and being successful with adoption. If you think about data and insights, that's the output. So I believe that your inputs really, really, really matter so that the score takes care of itself. Because if you're training and you're learning and you're driving adoption and you're running QBRs and you're running retention SWAT, all those things to ensure clients don't churn and they can adopt and they can use, then your score is going to be fine. However, you end up measuring customer success. I think it's a great definition. Look, I overuse the word practice for things I prioritize and maybe I confuse it with habits, but here's, I think with a practice, you've got to have a management system. It's kind of like what we were talking about to start for me, being healthy is a practice. I've got to have a management system around it. First thing in the morning, I'm, I'm going to get that done. So I run technical sales now, and I will tell you right now, we already and will have a worldwide practice leader because I think you got to continually focus on, on that practice. So good answer. As you started this newsletter, you said creating something is easy, scaling something is hard. And then you gave the example of Starbucks on how they have, have scaled. Can you talk a little bit about that? Why you say that? Yes. In fact, I just came back from 11 days in Europe and I um, went to Starbucks quite a few times because, <laughs> because it's consistent, right? Like I knew what I was going to get. So 
if you think about you go to a Starbucks, any Starbucks around the world, the coffee tastes the same. The food may be different. The cream that they put inside may be different, right? But in fact, in Europe, they don't have cream. But anyway, that's a different story. Um, the, 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 the coffee is the same. The recipe is the same. Why? Right? It's because they use a recipe. There's a consistent experience. And I believe that customers want to know that they can count on IBM for consistent best-in-class experiences. So that is why I talk about getting to scale. You have to have consistency. You have to have discipline. You have to have practices. You have to have methodologies. I think Starbucks is a, whether you or not you like Starbucks coffee, right? You may not have been like coffee, but what the company has done to create best in class, consistent experiences that are frictionless out. I mean, truly, if they screw up, they're going to give you a free coffee every time, right? They want world-class experiences through a consistent recipe and you know what you're going to get. So I use that analogy. I've been using it since 2019 because that is my mantra for what I envision success to be is that we show up consistently and you're getting a world-class frictionless experience when you work with IBM CSMs. This is a weird question. Do you think you can overscale? Here's the reason I asked that on Starbucks. So I'm in China. I go to the Forbidden City and carved into this ancient ruin is a Starbucks. And at that point, I'm like, this is enough. <laughs> they are too far now. I'm going to go find another coffee. Yeah. But maybe, you know, maybe I should have thought that. I don't yeah. know. So it's a good point. So I just read this book over the weekend called Zero to One by Peter Thiel. And he uses this analogy. It's all about um, entrepreneurs and startups. And he uses this analogy on um, globalization and, and scaling, basically, which you go one to N. And then what he calls sort of like innovation, you're going zero to one. It's vertical. It's, it's, it's the idea doesn't exist, zero to something new existing. I think we have to, I like that because I think we have to balance both. I think there's this notion of doing it once, anybody can do. Oh, you go to the gym once, it's easy. You go seven days a week, that's one end, that's hard. But now let's talk, let's give another example, Al. So you, you're talking about, um, you said, said it was PX, PX? P90X, what do you mean? P90X, you do that yeah. seven days a week. And then you go do a Peloton, you know, uh, ride on day eight. That's new. It's working different muscles, yeah, right? Yeah. So I think we have to find the balance where we're always figuring out how to innovate. But when you innovate, you have to figure out how you get it to scale. I think both are important. No, it makes perfect sense. It also makes sense, by the way, to challenge your muscles differently because that's exactly why I did it. I was doing P90X and Insanity every other day for like five years. And I'm like, I've got to do something different. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, right? I, this is getting old. By the way, Zero to One, is that what the book was? It's called Zero to One. It's a really good book. I, and it's really all about you know entrepreneurship and building new businesses, um, which, hey, out, you know, now that you're leading... ATLs and technical sales. This can be a great, great book for you. I already put it down. Look, I All read right. a ton. That's one reason. See, I try to hit two birds with one stone. I work out and a lot of times I listen to a book or if I go around, go. I listen to a book, right? That's another, you got to find associations that make you actually want to do like exercise. See, if I know, oh, I got to read that book, I start running. 
Absolutely. First thing you went into in the newsletter was purpose. Can you talk to both why that was intentional and what is the purpose of uh, customer success? So it was intentional. I think the hardest thing that humans have is the ability to say no. And I think when you say yes to so many things, you lose your way, whether that's in your personal life or whether that's in your professional life. And if you look at people who have succeeded or companies that have succeeded, they have maniacal focus and they know their purpose. Knowing your purpose and having discipline is when there's something else that you really, really want to do. But it takes everything in your power to say no. And you actually do say no so that you can focus. And I started out with purpose, Al, because when we relaunched the mission of customer success in 2021, our purpose was to put CSMs on our hybrid cloud and AI platform software so that we can drive OpenShift and help our customers adopt hybrid cloud and AI. And there was a certain portfolio list that we prioritized. And there were a lot of teams that came out and I know people aren't happy with me, but a lot of teams came out and said, go cover this, go cover this, go cover this, go cover this. And I had to say no, because if I am everybody, if I'm everything, I'm sorry, to everybody, then I've lost my way and the team can't focus. And so I'd rather do less products and do them really well and then figure out how we take on more where it makes sense. So I believe in a focused purpose so that the teams can focus so that we can drive results. You said in that same article that the one metric that you had was deployment and you intentionally did not choose NRR or renewal rate, which I think for those reading, it could be a little bit surprising because you do associate, or at least I associate customer success management with NRR and renewal rate as well. Why was that your intention? Very good question. And it's also a point in time. So any customer success leader on the planet would say, what in the world is she thinking? How do they, <laughs> how do they get funding, right? Because you got to prove that you're driving revenue. I think it's company specific and it was timing specific of where we were. So in IBM customer success, we cover IBM cloud. So that actually had net revenue retention on it, but the software CSMs, their metric main metric was on deployment. And that is because we had to get software deployed, right? Our cloud packs that were running on OpenShift or our AI application software that we prioritized. So I picked that metric as a point in time. And after 2021, we had so much deployment. It was great, right? Now we're ready and we were ready and we're doing it now for 2022 to add some additional KPIs on. So the renewal rate matters, the net revenue retention matters. But again, Al, it goes back to focus and you know your purpose. Our purpose was to get software deployed in 2021 so that we can drive that annuity stream and growth as we went into 2022. There is no point on driving renewal and expansion when you don't even have software deployed. So that was the logic behind this. And now we're in a great place and we're driving a lot of growth and renewals with what was deployed last year. 
So are those your three metrics now, deployment, NRR, and renewal rate, or are there more? Yeah, you got it. Those are the three metrics. Now on deployment, and you and I have debated about this before, how do you define deployed? I mean, truly deployed, because it could be in a production environment even versus really being used in a mission critical state. It's a good question. So there's three things that we look at when we talk about is um, customer deployed in production. So one, do they have mission critical data, workflows, uh, applications running in their environment? In other words, out if I went over and I unplugged the server, would anybody notice, right? <laughs> I mean, if, if nobody's going to notice, is that really is that really production, right? The second thing is you could have a dev test environment that is actually set up to support your production workloads, but is that set up, it's operational, it's functioning, the business units have, have signed off. So that's the second thing we look for. And then the third thing we look for is you could actually have tooling that is running in an environment. Think about your data scientists building models or think about your business analysts that are getting dashboards ready, right? All of that may be it's tooling, but it's set up as their workspace to do their work, to take those models or dashboards and so forth into production. So those are kind of three key questions that we ask and things that we look for. But, you know, we're getting better with instrumentation and our products. We look for additional use cases that are deployed. Um, so all, there's other things that sort of add up to, for us to say, you know, are we sure clients are consuming and getting value out of the product? So that's how we think about it. Not, not that I don't trust CSMs or, or anything <laughs> of that nature, but no, I mean, no, wait, wait, wait to my Where question. But I, I, in instrumentation, the answer, isn't that, that tell you how customers are using it? Because here's why, I mean, here's why I truly say that and you laugh, but it's often customers don't do what they say they do as well. You know what I mean? Uh, so I think it's incredibly important, is it not? Absolutely. So we've been working back with offering management on instrumentation and and how we collect quantities that are deployed. So that's all good stuff that's actually coming out. And that's a great way to balance, you know, what clients are actually using based on what's deployed and talking to your CSM. How are they, how are they consuming? How are they getting value? What, what can, and you know what, what can't they do that they want to do, right? Those conversations between product management and CSMs are golden. By the way, as a pause here, as, as you're writing what you've learned out, is this a good self-reflection on where you've been? And do you, do you even learn more as you're writing this out? I do. And even though I know the topics I want to write about, I sit down kind of with a, a blank slate and I start a, a lot of reflection out on things that I wish I had as a product manager or things that I've learned in you know, in the profession here of customer success that I've applied. And look, I've messed up sometimes, right? There's a lot of things that I did not do well, but I learned from those and I figure out how to never make those mistakes again. The reason I asked that question is because I had a kind of revelation when I read your piece about the practice that we've been talking about. You talked about, hey, look, in very open, you, you stated, hey, look, I was focused on the score. I looked back and the fundamentals were weak and it was hard for you to admit it. But then you said, all right, I've got to look at the inputs and not the score. But then you also, you had a pretty good picture. I mean, it was simple, 
but it defined the practice in terms of three different parts. And like I said earlier, I have been big on the practice, but I have to tell you, uh, I don't think I've defined it as simply as I need to. And I need to go back and say, look, here's what the practice looks like. Yes. So I have um, within the customer success practice that I mentioned before, I have a leader on top of that with a team underneath her. She manages the, our Gainsight instance and creates you know, the custom dashboards and the insights that our CSMs and our managers need in order to manage our customers. We, Like I said, we use Gainsight. Um, she also runs all of our training, our onboarding, our hiring. Um, don't underestimate that if you're listening to this. Hiring is hard. You know, we're in the Great Recession. The lesson that I've learned is is this. Sorry, I'm gonna I'm gonna go off a little bit here, Al. But you have to be part of the hiring process if you're hiring today. It was amazing. Last April, HR gave me a LinkedIn recruiter license. Oh my gosh, it was awesome because I've never had this experience before in going into LinkedIn with a different lens to find candidates, to source candidates. And I personally reached out to hundreds of candidates and I got a lot of responses back. And what I learned, and this is for any leader hiring, candidates want to talk to you. There's nothing wrong with your HR team, your talent team, your recruiting team, but you as the business leader or as the technical leader, when you personally reach out, they want to talk to you, right? You're leading that organization and that mission. So all of the hiring, the onboarding, the training is underneath the practice. And then, and by the way, I think it's really hard to do a CS practice role if you don't have experience in CS. So I, I think that's table stakes to join that team. Now on the product practices, people that we put inside of the product practices have deep product skills. They're SMEs because they're helping our CSMs understand technology, how you understand monetization and migration and different container platforms and competitive platforms. They really, really know products. And then on data and insight, I have people that know data science. They know analytics. They're, they're giving me things and data that I didn't even know I needed, right? So the, the people on that team are my data junkies. So that's how the my worldwide practice is structured with the types of skills that I have on each of those teams. They're different, but they complement each other. Yeah, I don't know if it's a rhetorical question or not, but uh, I'm, I'm, I hear you on the hiring piece. And look, I always look at great people build wonderful businesses that attract loyal clients. But often in practice, well, we've used that word a few times. In practice, I often see people focusing on the business, then maybe the clients, and then their people last. First off, I think hiring's hard. I think there is an art to it. I think that you have to have some experience doing it. I think you're going to have, I hate to say it, but you're going to have hiring mistakes that you learn from and you're going to say, I'm never going to make that mistake again. I think people rush it because they have hiring targets to meet or they start playing the game of, oh, this person's got a competitive offer or they've got three offers, they've got five offers. I mean, how long are you going to play that game? People want to join a culture is my philosophy. They want to join a great team. They want to be part of something special. They want to work with great people. They want to work with, with people where they're going to have fun. They're going to learn, they're going to grow and they feel like they accomplished something, right? So my, my view is it's rushed. 
there's no methodology behind it. And I believe there needs to be a methodology. And I talk about that as well. You have to have a hiring formula, but I mean, you know, let's, let's like make sure we bring the right people on. Right. And where you've made a mistake, admit it. You know what? I had the exact same experience. We first started when I was an expert lab services, in which case we were doing a lot of hiring and I'll give myself at least this much credit. I knew that the world's different in the sense that, that with the, you know, every, you know, there's so many people that got opportunities that didn't have before. I mean, there's so many jobs available, et cetera. So I went, I got a recruiter, like an outside recruiter, but I wanted them just to look and give me advice on how we were hired. They looked at the hiring wreck, if you will. And they said, this is terrible. <laughs> I yeah. wasn't so terrible about it. They said, you're telling everything you want, but you've never said anything that they get. And I said, they said, yeah, we, they want to know what they get. You're advertising. I mean, this, yep. this isn't like it used to be. You got to change this. So this should be an infomercial. But that was kind of enlightening uh, to me. It's like, so wow, true. I, I gotta change that, it. That's, that's lessons, right? But, but now, because somebody told you that, you learned from that, right? And I think that that's the other thing. I think that in technology, things move so fast. Every day, you just learn and figure out how to take lessons and apply them. Well, I'll give you some credit. When I was in there, I, I stole your rubric from Expert Labs, at least part of it, the, the, the format. And the first thing that I've done with uh, tech sales here is start that rubric. So I've got three parts now. The yep. rubric, what it means to be ready for the role, tech sales, tech sales readiness model. So you got the hiring rubric, the tech sales readiness rubric. I don't know if you want to call it. It's just a model. And it also serves as a performance gauge. And then one more layer that, that is enablement based on any gaps that they have on their readiness. And then yep. what we're going to do, and you also mentioned this in your in your newsletter, is kind of use the, if you've not read the, the book, folks, Sales Acceleration Formula, the iteration of, all right, we're going to look back in 90 days and see who's performing, then take that back to the rubric and continue to improve. Absolutely. complete, And that's what all you can do is iterate, right? It's never going to be perfect. But, it, you know, iterate... Um, you know, adjust. And I think, Al, you're also saying something implicitly, which is you got to be able to measure. How do you know if it worked? How do you know if it worked? And so I think that's an important part of this rubric and hiring formula. Well, you also mentioned that you found that female candidates weren't applying in how you'd laid out the requirements. Could you talk more on that? Oh, yeah, that was another mistake I made. So I, I wrote the wreck. It probably, it, it definitely wasn't as fun as it should have been, Al. So you're right on that <laughs> point, right? Why, why should you come work and I get customer success, right? So, but I also wrote it up where, I mean, what I learned afterwards, HR called me and they're like, Hey, I'm like, Hey, <laughs> we need to talk about your job wreck. Okay. What do you want to talk about? Well, History tells us and statistics tells us that women won't apply unless they feel like they can do almost 100% of the role or 80% of the role, right? A very high percent. If they don't have those skills, they said, you put, you know, must have against every single skill. I mean, Janine, nobody's going to apply. Men aren't going to apply. And I said, okay, you're right. So we had to readapt the rec to be a little bit more 
like, look, you, anybody, you know, you could do it. Right. And so that was horrifying for me as a female. Right. I mean, that was horrifying for me. So that was one of my lessons I had to, um, and it's not that men are more are smarter than women. Let me be super clear on that. It's just the data no. tells us, right, Al? Right, Al? I was going to make a comment. So unlike men, by the way, we're just the subpar side of the species. We just say, hey, we can do it. Whatever. We'll just say we can do it. Right? <laughs> like, you know, my 11-year-old son, he comes home. And I mean, like, he's like never played basketball in his life. He's like, I'm great. I'm like, oh, my gosh. You can't even <laughs> it. Right? So, um it, it's just that, you know, I had to be sensitive to that. And it was great awareness and support from HR so that I can get the rec right. All right. I'm going to move on. Thank you for that. This is good. I can keep going on. We're going to run up on time as normal. Churn, you talked about churn and you you actually had a graph compared, I think, three companies. One that's churning at 3%, one at 10%, and one that has no churn or something like that. And you showed the the impact and you know what occurs to me in that is that I really do not think people get compounding interest. I really don't. You know, I, Einstein allegedly said, I don't know if he said this or not, but compound or compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world. He who understands it uh, earns it. He who doesn't pays it. Let me give you one example. As an investor, if you invest like $1 million, check this out. Follow me here. After 30 years at 10%, which would be a hell of a run but you'll get $17 million. So 1 million at 10%, 30 years, 17 million. Yeah. If you're charged a fee of 1.5% for that 30 years, yeah. think of that. You're just, it's just a fee of 1.5, nothing, right? You go down to 8.5, you only make $11.5 million. So you lose a third by being charged 1.5%. So why do you think all these financial planners want to get just a, you know, 1.5? That's all it is. That's the magic of compounding interest. So say more on churn and how you're focusing on, on, on churn to ensure you don't get caught in that trap. Churn's a killer. Um, but at the same time, churn's going to happen. It's going to happen because of your client's you know, company dynamic, their company dynamics, maybe they were acquired, right? Maybe they went bankrupt. Maybe we're in COVID and they can't pay their bills. <laughs> maybe you lost because of a competitive threat and your product wasn't competitive anymore. It's tough to talk about, but it's true. So churn will happen. So where you have to balance that is with growth. And growth and churn have to go together. You can't just keep churning without growth. And this is where the holy grail metric for a customer success manager is that net revenue retention. Because it basically starts with your base and it says if you never got a net new, you know, dollar that came in, how are you going to grow your base and prevent churn? And you always want to be over 100%. And so you have to recognize that churn will happen, but what are you going to do about it to grow? And I wanted to get in front of churn in all of my businesses because I want to I want to grow this business um, for IBM. It's it's important for our customers and it's important for IBM. It's important for our employees. So one of the things that I felt was really important to get in front of churn is to improve our relationship back with the product teams. I coming from 16 years in product. 
I felt like we needed to have a better feedback loop between what the CSMs were hearing from customers and the lab. And again, my first year in doing this, uh, last year really, um, it was very ad hoc. It was the person that screams the loudest. It was, and usually that was me. And it was about, <laughs> you know, it, it was, there, were no, there was no tolling. We were in PowerPoint. It was chaotic. It was horrible. And I was like, I got to fix this. So we implemented an automated process. We use tooling. We use AHA as our tool for where CSMs submit requirements that come in. But more importantly, we have a regular interlock with the lab for all of our brands. I mean, I'm talking like twice a week for things that we get from product management. But more importantly, Al, it's letting the CSMs and the tech sellers and client engineering and the ATLs know this is what we're doing with what you gave us. Your customer asked for this. We can deliver it here. Or you know what? We can't deliver it. And even hearing back that says, no, we can't do it. At least, you know, and I know nobody wants to hear that, but at least you've heard back, right? Or you've heard when it's coming. So we are so much better than where we were. And we have a really, really good relationship and respectedly relationship back with our product management and development teams. And we think that that makes our products better because of our collaboration back in with the lab. I don't want to end, but we probably probably should. You are terrific. I love your passion and energy. Anything that we didn't cover that before we close up shop that you say, oh, we should have discussed X, Y, or Z. We didn't get to it. No, Al, I, you're terrific. I want to thank you for the partnership um, that we've had for the last couple of years. And I look forward to working with the ATLs and the uh, brand technical specialists even closer now under your leadership. So Thank you for the partnership, Al. Same. ATLs, by the way, for those listening are account technical leaders. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much. I, I lied. I got one last question. Where can folks find you in your newsletter? Oh, <laughs> it is at janinesneed.substack.com. All right. Fantastic. Thank you again, Janine. And thank you listeners for, for hanging out with us today. Please rate us on Al, well, rate us on any flavor of your podcast of choice. Meanwhile, hit us on almartintalksdata at gmail.com. Until next time, I'll see you on the podcast. Thank you greatly. See you all.